0: Good morning, and welcome to the Truth in Love radio broadcast. This program has been a part of the Mid-South for the last 70 years, faithfully overseen by the Getwell Church of Christ. Truth in Love will carry on lifting up the banner of New Testament Christianity today to the Mid-South area under the oversight of the Olive Branch Church of Christ. Please join us now as Mike Hickson opens the Bible and shares the truth in love.
1: A careful examination of the Bible informs us that we are to investigate, to do our research in matters of faith and practice, so that we might stand on indisputable ground I believe that the Bible is the inspired word of God. Paul said it was in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped unto every good work. The all-sufficiency of Scripture. Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 that God has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. In other words, everything that we need to know about living a godly life in Christ Jesus has been revealed. Jeremiah tells us in chapter 10, verse 23, It is not in man that walks to direct his own steps. No, we have to follow a standard, that is, the word of God. The psalmist said in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp unto our feet a light unto our pathway. When we talk about investigating the truth of Almighty God and then drawing conclusions. Did you know that Paul taught in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that we are to prove all things, test all things, hold fast that which is good. And the idea is that we are to put to the test, prove the things that we believe and practice. We're to use a divine standard. That standard is the word of God. It's not what I think or what the multitude thinks. It's not what has been penned in a creed book or a manual of faith. No, it's the word of God. In Philippians chapter 3, at verse 16, the apostle Paul said, let us walk by the same rule and be of the same mind. The term rule in that text is the word from which we get our term canon. And the idea is that God's word is the standard, the measuring stick, by which everything is to be analyzed. It was said of the ancient Bereans of old that they received the word of God with all readiness of mind. Now note, and searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Number one, they had an open heart. In Luke 8, verse 15, Jesus talks about the seed of the kingdom, the word of God, being planted in the heart. When that seed is planted in an honest and good heart, it yields fruit. When we take the seed of the kingdom, Place that seed within our heart. If we have the right kind of heart, then our lives will be blessed immensely. Our goal is to examine everything through the prism of divine truth. In our study today, now we talk about the Bereans of old. They had an open heart, but they had an open Bible. Yes, they investigated. They made sure that what Paul and Silas were teaching coincided with divine truth. We today must do the same. In our study today, I want to say at the onset, some of the things that are said might prove to be unsettling. In other words, it might be the case that you're going to hear some things today that you haven't thought about, that you've never read about in the scriptures in Romans chapter 4 at verse 3, Paul raised a question. What does the scripture say? My goal is to simply tell you what the Bible says. Nothing more, nothing less. In 1 Peter chapter 4 at verse 11, Peter said, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. What I want to do when I study today is to analyze what the Bible says versus Catholicism and denominationalism what people often espouse propagate and practice quite frankly doesn't meet the litmus test of divine truth now i don't want you to take my word for it but rather what i want you what i want to encourage you to do is you have an open an open bible and you have a receptive heart a good and honest heart And you evaluate what you hear and then you draw your conclusions. So let's just take some popular denominational thoughts and look at those in light of what the Bible teaches or in light of truth. Now, let me just very quickly preface this. I know that we're living in a day and time when there are many who dismiss the importance of truth. Some would say that there's no such thing as absolute truth. Well, the Bible is a presentation of absolute truth. And we can know the truth. Jesus said, you shall know the truth. The truth shall make you free in John 8, verse 32. In Ephesians 5:17, the apostle Paul would say, be not unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And then compare that to Ephesians 3, where Paul said he received revelation from God, took that revelation, wrote it down in a few words. Now note, whereby when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ. So I can understand the truth. I can know the truth. And also bear in mind, truth will one day judge us. Jesus said, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken the same shall judge him in the last day. When Paul wrote to the saints in Rome, he said, we know that the judgment of God is according to truth. What is truth? Jesus said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. In Revelation chapter 20, the apostle John pictures that great and final day of judgment. He said, I saw the dead small and great standing before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. What books do you think he had in mind there? It's my conviction that he was talking about God's Word, that God will open the pages of Scripture because we're going to be judged by Scripture. In light of that, let me just begin our study by calling attention to the various denominations that are in existence in the world today. There are literally hundreds of different religious entities or organizations They have advocated varying practices or doctrines. They wear different names. Is this this biblical? In other words, has God placed his stamp of authority on denominational churches or for the Catholic Church? Can we read about the Catholic Church or the various denominations in the Bible, Did you know that in Matthew chapter 16, when Jesus asked the question to his disciples, who do men say that I, the son of man, am? They gave him a number of responses. They said, some say you're John the Baptist, some Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. None of those answers were correct. Then the Lord asked this question, but whom do you say that I am? And Peter responded by saying, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And based upon that testimony, Jesus then said, and I also say to you that you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. Did you catch what Jesus said? The Lord said, I will build not my churches, plural. No, he said, I will build my church singular in nature, possessive in nature. The church was built by Jesus, bought with his blood, Acts 20, verse 28. It belongs to him. How many churches are authorized by God to exist today? Listen to Paul, Ephesians 4, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called and one hope of your calling one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all, over all, and in you all. Verses 4 through 6, Ephesians 4. How many bodies did you say there are, Paul? There is one body. All right. If there's one body, we need to determine what is the one body. Back up and look at Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. Paul said, he put all things in subjection under his feet, made him to be head over all things to the church. Listen to him, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, if the body is the church and the church is the body, again, we ask how many churches, how many bodies have the divine right to exist today? According to apostolic doctrine, only one. Well, what church the church that was born and bred in the mind of God. Did you know that the church exists according to God's eternal purpose, Ephesians 3, 9 through 11? When the Lord set forth the promised seed in Genesis 3, verse 15, inherent in his redemptive plan was the church, the kingdom of God. And the church or kingdom of God was to have its origin in Jerusalem. In Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Isaiah foresees the church as an exalted mountain into which all nations would flow. In that context, he said, the word of the Lord would go forth from Jerusalem. Daniel said, in the days of these kings, an eternal kingdom would be established. What kings? The Roman kings. And so, when the Lord Jesus said, I will build my church. He was promising to establish the church that had been foretold of by Isaiah the prophet, Jeremiah, and other prophets. In regard to this question, is there but one church? Well, the answer is quite frankly, yes, there's just one church. There is no authority for any denomination to exist. As a matter of fact, modern-day denominationalism came into being hundreds of years after the establishment of the Lord's Church. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. In the city of Memphis, there was a man some years back, Charles Harrison Mason, who is said to be the founder, the originator of the Church of God in Christ. That church founded, originated in the late 1800s in Arkansas. Well, that doesn't meet the criterion laid down by Scripture. No, the Bible says the church would begin in Jerusalem. It would begin in the days of the Roman kings, that is, in the first century. The deduction being any church that began outside of Jerusalem and other than Pentecost Day in the first century cannot be the New Testament church. Any church that began prior to Pentecost would be too old. Any church that began after Pentecost would be too new. So there's just one church authorized in the Bible. Well, what about those churches that have been founded by varying men? You know, I can go back and I can read historically of people like Martin Luther, John Wesley, Charles Wesley, I can read about Mr. Mason. I can read of a number of individuals that have founded human entities or organizations, that is, denominational churches. But we're not asking the question, we're not asking the question, have churches been founded by men? The answer to that would be, of course they have. But what we are asking is this, the church that we read about in the Bible, who founded it? Well, Jesus did. You see, Jesus is the only one authorized to build a church. In Matthew 16, in verse 18, when the Lord said, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. There are some that have the idea that the church was built upon Peter based upon what the lord said in verse 18 Matthew 16 but i would i would take issue with that i would grant that there is a play on words there the name peter is masculine in gender and it means a small stone a pebble whereas the word rock is feminine in gender and it doesn't it does not suggest a small stone or a pebble rather that term means a large rock a boulder a gigantic rock so when the Lord said to Peter upon this rock I will build my church what was he saying Peter based upon your bedrock statement that I am the Christ the son of the living God I'm going to build my church Jesus is the founder of the church not only is he the founder of the church, he is the foundation of the church. Now you might ask the question, how do you know that? Can you prove that? In 1 Corinthians chapter three at verse 11, Paul said, "For other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid which is Christ Jesus." What then do we conclude? The church founded by Jesus, when the city of Jerusalem. At what point? the days of the Roman kings, the first century. Jesus was the founder of the church, and he is the foundation of the church. If the Lord built the church on Peter, if you ever thought if that were the case, that would mean that the church was built upon fallible man, and we know that's not the case. No, Peter was an instrument used in a mighty way by Almighty God. He was an apostle, a disciple of Jesus. But the church wasn't founded by him. No, the church was founded by Jesus. And the foundation of the church is Jesus. Paul would say in Ephesians 2 that Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Everything rests upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Go back to the first century for a minute. Imagine if you can, you had the opportunity to pull to the side some of those who obeyed the gospel on Pentecost Day. Peter tells us on that day that Peter and the apostles preached the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. They highlighted the fact that he had ascended to heaven, was seated at the right hand of God, where he wields all authority. He's coronated. He is on David's throne. And the Bible says to those who were present on that occasion... Peter said, "'Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this same Jesus whom you crucified, God, has made both Lord and Christ.' When they heard this, they were pricked in their heart, or cut to the heart, convicted we might say. And they cried out unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, and they asked this question, "'Men and brethren, what shall we do?' Peter said, "'Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins.'" In verse 41, the Bible tells us that those who gladly received his word were baptized. In verse 47, Luke, the inspired historian, said, and the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Now, let's put ourselves back in the first century. And imagine we saw somebody coming up out of the water, having been baptized into Christ for the remission of sins. And we said, sir or ma'am, I've just got to ask you, What church do you belong to? What do you think they would have said? I mean, think about that for a minute. What would they have said? I think their response would have been, well, I'm just a member of the church. Well, what church? Just the church. Well, why would they have given that answer? Because in the first century, there was not a single solitary denomination in existence. They didn't come along until hundreds of years after the establishment of the Lord's church. Now, you can look at every modern denomination, and as you go through, as you go through and begin sifting those varying denominations, you will not read of any denomination in the bible the denomination that you're a part of can you show me where that denomination exists in the bible can you read the name of your church in the bible now somebody says well a name really doesn't mean that much i would beg to differ if jesus christ built the church and he did bought it with his blood and he did wouldn't it stand to reason that it would bear his name? I mean, if it belongs to him, wouldn't it wear his name? Now, somebody might say, well, you know what? I know those who are members of the Churches of Christ. They're members of that church that was founded or started by Thomas and Alexander Campbell. No, that's not the case. The Churches of Christ existed long before Thomas and Alexander Campbell were even thought of. Well, how do I know that? Well, turn to Romans 16, verse 16. There, the Apostle Paul said it like this The churches of Christ salute you. Paul, did you know something about the churches of Christ? Yes. Well, why? Because you wrote about them. Not only did you write about them, you were a member of the church of Christ. When we say the church of Christ, we're not using that in a denominational sense. No, what we're saying is, it is the church that belongs to Christ. Individual Christians belong to whom? They belong to Christ, don't they? Take, for example, the word Christian. The suffix I A N on Christ put The suffix and Christ together. And what do you have? A Christian. The suffix I-A-N means belonging to. When I say I am a Christian, what am I saying? I belong to Christ. All right. If individually I have been added to the church, wouldn't it stand to reason that I am a part of the church that belongs to Christ? That's what we're saying here. I'm not using the term Church of Christ in a denominational sense. Now, I could use the term church as a designation for those who are a part of that divine body. I could use the term kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. Or in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 2, I could identify those who belong to the Lord as members of the church of God. I could read about the church of the living God in First Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. But I can't read of any modern denomination in the Bible. It's just that simple. So how many churches are there? There's just one church. And Jesus was the founder of the one church. He is the foundation of the one church. He is the chief cornerstone of the one church. Well, what about the idea that you just need to join the church of your choice. You ever heard that? I mean, haven't we all heard people say, join the church of your choice? I mean, after all, it's kind of like going through a cafeteria and you just pick and choose. If this particular church aligns with your thinking, then you identify with them. Well, let me ask this. Wouldn't it be better to become a member of the church of God's design of his choice? God established his church in Jerusalem on Pentecost Day, and you can read about that in Acts chapter 2. And those who complied with the terms of admission into the kingdom of God were added to the church. Did you know that we're not voted into the church? We don't join the church? No, the Lord adds us to the church. In other words, when we obey the gospel, the Lord takes us from the world and places us into his divine body. In Colossians chapter 1, Paul in verse 12 said, giving thanks to the Father who has made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, or he's qualified us. And he said, he has delivered us out of the power of darkness. Now listen to him and translated us into the kingdom of God's dear son. So there is a transferal that takes place when we obey the gospel, all right? Who's the one that does the transferal? The Lord does. The Lord's the one that that delivers us out of the power of darkness and then places us into his divine body known as the church. And again, remember, there's just one church There's just one body. The Lord is the founder of that one church, one body. He is the foundation of that one church and one body. It belongs to Him. He built it. He bought it with His blood. And and as a result of that, it belongs to Him. Well, what about those who say that baptism is not essential to salvation? Have you heard that before? I remember hearing a preacher some years back who said with regard to baptism, His statement was, you need to understand it's not an option, it's an obligation. But then he turned around and said, but you need to understand it's not essential to being saved. Well, my question is, which is it? Either it's an obligation or it's an option. Can't be both. All right. On Pentecost Day, when those people cried out to Peter and the rest of the apostles after having been convicted of sin, and they asked, men and brethren, what shall we do? What did they tell those people to do? Did you know if you go back to Matthew 16, when Jesus promised to build the church in verse 19, he told Peter, as well as the other apostles, and you can link Matthew eighteen eighteen to Matthew sixteen nineteen, he promised them that they would be given the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys signify authority. So on Pentecost Day, When those people present were cut to the heart and cried out, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter and the apostles, they were divine spokesmen, weren't they? They were inspired men proclaiming an inspired message. The Bible says in Acts 2 verse 4 that they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So when they asked the question, men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. For what reason? For the remission of your sins. Question, did he know what he was talking about? Well, he was an inspired apostle, as were the other apostles. They were God's divinely appointed spokesman. Go back and look at Mark 16, 16. Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. It seems to me that Jesus believed that baptism was necessary for salvation. Now, Jesus has all authority, Matthew 28, 18. God said we're to hear him, Matthew 17, 5. So if Jesus places belief and baptism before salvation, who am I to deny that? There are some who say that we are baptized because we've already been saved. That's not what the Bible says. Jesus said, he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's a quotation. Do you remember what Jesus asked on one occasion? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? The Lord said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father, which is in heaven. Is baptism essential to salvation? The record says yes. We're going to pick up here next week in our study. There's some more things we want to talk about. I want to encourage you, after our study today, to search the scriptures, to make sure that what you believe and practice is founded upon indisputable ground, because one day this book will judge us. God bless you.
0: Thank you for listening today we would love to have you visit with us at the Olive Branch Church of Christ, located at 9100 East Sandridge Road, Olive Branch, Mississippi, 38654. We meet for Sunday Bible study at 9 a.m. Worship is at 10 a.m. Sunday afternoon study is at 1 p.m. Tuesday morning class, Bible class, is at 10 a.m. Wednesday evening Bible class at 7 p.m. Please visit our website www.olivebranchchurchofchrist.org